Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center left to center right. I'm Sonny Bunch, culture editor at the Bulwark, and I'm sitting in for Mona Sharon this week. She's off. She's enjoying her vacation, but uh, hopefully you can hang with me. Joining me are regulars Bill Gulston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez with the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker, who writes notes from the middle ground on Substack. You can normally find me hosting the podcast, The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood and Across the Movie Aisle. We're talking news today, which is always fun for me. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for being on the show. Hello. Hi. Good to be here, as always. Let's start off with what would have been the big news of the week and the upcoming weeks, as a matter of fact. And that would be Fox News itself. At the last minute, the network bought itself out of the embarrassment of having to have Rupert Murdoch, Tucker Carlson, and Sean Hannity testify in Dominion Voting Systems defamation case. First Amendment attorneys are calling the record-setting $787.5 million settlement deal as a blowout in Dominion's favor. But some were disappointed. We wouldn't get to see the full Fox humiliation. I'll lay my cards out on the table first. I feel like this is a pretty straightforward win. Fox gets hurt and hurt badly. I'm sorry, like $787 million. That's a lot of money, no matter how much they have in reserve, whatever. And we all got to see the documents demonstrating the Fox hosts just being unscrupulous liars. It was kind of amazing. More suits against more targets are in the offing. This is only the beginning. Damon, am I being overly optimistic here or is this actually a win? Well, as the podcast's arbiter of relative optimism, (laughs) I will weigh in and say, no, you are not being too optimistic. I actually thought this was a very good outcome and actually a better outcome than going forward with the full trial and then having, I don't know, three, four, five, who knows how many years of appeals before any kind of a penalty was assessed. As you said, we already had a lot of discovery and we have other lawsuits coming down the pike, which will have their own discovery. So I think most of the facts will get out there into the public sphere. We will hear about it. We will see the memos, the emails that we haven't seen yet. And frankly, most people who are informed about the news and have an open mind to kind of judge reality as it truly is, already know the truth here. The people who most need to learn that truth are precisely the people who will be refuse to hear it in whatever form it emerges. So for me, the most important thing about this whole episode is the potential for the penalty to be painful enough for the Fox Corporation. Behind the scenes, never admitting anything publicly, but within the corporate world of the business, they give the message to the Tucker Carlson's and the rest of the Sean Hannity's and so forth. You know, don't let this happen again. Now, of course, we don't know what the next terrible thing is going to be. But if the general message is we have to be 3% more responsible the next time we have the opportunity to send the country careening off a cliff, that's a marginal win. And, you know, my standards of optimism and pessimism have been shaped by the various forms of erosion we've had in our politics over the last decade. And that's where I stand right now, at least. Yeah. Linda, what's interesting about this is, as Damon says, you know, the chance that there will be some behind the scenes movement to make things a little bit more in tune and in line with reality at Fox 
And I'm not 100% sure what more we could have gotten out of this. I mean, do you think that there was something we're really missing out on here by not getting the full trial? I actually think that the real story is, why did Fox not settle this sooner? They could have settled. They could have settled, you know, probably for hundreds of millions, maybe not 787.5 million. And before Dominion was able to get out into the public domain, all of those really damning emails that were going on behind the scenes. And and they didn't. And having spent a good deal of my life in the corporate world, I can tell you that, you know, around a normal board table, there would be discussions about whether they perhaps need some new lawyers, need different general counsel, maybe need a new CEO, because this was clearly a mistake. It clearly has damaged them. And in terms of the suggestion that it would have been better had we gone to trial, it would have been better for people like us because we're obsessed with this. We fixate on it. We read everything about it. But the people who really need to get the truth don't get it. They not only watch Fox News, they watch OAN, they watch Newsmax, they watch other right-wing media, or they don't watch at all. They just go on the internet and get their news filtered through one of the you know various right-wing media there. And so it's not as if we were going to be educating people more than we were already educated by the release of all these emails. But I would imagine may not happen right away because corporations don't like to admit their mistakes. But I would be very surprised if we see the same C-suite in place at Fox News that we've had through the course of this. Heads should roll because there were some very, very bad decisions made during the process of this suit. Linda, you mentioned something very important. I want to hit on it just real quick because, you know, one thing I have heard from folks who are disappointed this didn't go to trial was, you know, we needed a suit that was going to bankrupt Fox News and drive them out of business. We don't want Fox News around anymore. And I empathize with that point of view because I do think Fox has been not altogether helpful, certainly over the last six or eight years here in terms of the public's understanding of what's going on in the world. But I do have a sort of devil you know attitude towards this. Do we really want Fox News to go out of business and those three million viewers or so to gravitate towards OAN or Newsmax? That does not sound like a win to me in the grand scheme of things. Right. I think you're right about that, Sonny. I mean, as bad as Fox News has become, And it didn't start out that way. I was on Fox News for many, many years as a commentator. They were happy to have me on. I haven't changed my views. It's Fox that's changed. So Fox has changed over the years. They've moved to the right. But in part, that's because the market moved to the right. And there is a very large market for the kind of conspiracy-driven media that OAN, Newsmax, and others represent in pushing you know, these fantasies that Donald Trump was somehow cheated out of winning the presidential race. But that's just the beginning of it. I mean, what's been most disheartening to me in recent days is the way in which Fox News has handled the leaks of classified documents with the young man who was in the National Guard who put his access to secret documents up on a private chat room. That then gets picked up. Some of the documents get altered. They become Russian disinformation. And then they are aired as news by Tucker Carlson and others. So Fox is a bad player here but it's probably not the worst that there is. And I think we have to be careful about talking about 
punishing media outfits, even if we don't like what they do, even if they don't rise to the standards of uh, normal journalism. We do have free speech in this country. And so, again, I think this was a good outcome. I think we're going to see more good outcomes out of this Smartmatic suit and out of some of the individual suits by Smartmatic and Dominion against people like Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, and Mike Lindell. Uh, Bill, there is a, you know, demand problem here, right? It's not like Fox News exists in a vacuum. There is a desire for this reporting that kind of reinforces biases in a way that is possibly or very obviously inaccurate. Well, there's no question about that. But at the same time that there was a demand problem, I think Fox feared (laughs) that the demand would go away. One of the big takeaways for me is how scared Fox was of losing its market and how much that drove their behavior. We will never know how this would have played out if Fox hadn't made the early call for Biden in Arizona. But the negative consequences of that, I think, drove them to overcompensate in the post-election period in all sorts of ways. For me, the bottom line is whether and if so, how the resolution of this controversy will affect Fox's behavior. Because how Fox behaves does have an effect on what its audience thinks. The relationship between Fox and its audience is reciprocal. What the audience thinks drives how Fox covers events. But similarly, I believe how Fox covers events influences within a pretty broad range how its audience thinks. And one optimistic possibility is that the outcome, the expensive outcome of this affair, will, as some other people have already suggested, improve Fox's conduct and its relationship with the truth, or at least a permissible interpretation of the facts in a positive way. I can imagine a not so positive outcome where the message goes out, stop using email. We don't want our internal deliberations to be discoverable anymore. So let us make sure that if we conduct these conversations, let's do it face-to-face or let's do it in unrecorded and undiscoverable telephone calls. And I'm enough of a cynic at this point to believe that there's a non-negligible chance that the don't do it on email, don't do it for the record on paper response will be an important part of the total response. I hope I'm wrong about that, but I fear I'm not. Now, I think JVL described that as the Tony Soprano response to this situation on another Bulwark podcast. The, you know, pick up a phone, don't send a text message, don't have something that can be easily traced. You got to be sneakier than this. Exit question here for Damon is I spent a lot of time in journalism in my professional career, pretty much all of it. The reason I was convinced that Fox News would settle this sooner rather than later, frankly, I'm surprised it went as long as it did, much like Linda, I couldn't believe it. I've never seen a single organization violate as many of the precepts the lawyers give you in every single libel, slander, defamation conference that you sit in as a journalist to learn how not to get sued into oblivion. You are a writer. You've been, I'm sure, to some of these things. Did that not jump out at you as well as this whole thing was unfolding? 
Oh, sure. I mean, we in the media who are critics of Fox and a lot of the trends we've been discussing in right-wing media are sort of accustomed to saying this, but the fact is it's true that Fox does not behave like a journalistic enterprise. We sometimes throw that around. Oh, it's not even journalism. It's not a news organization. But I think this whole event and the discovery that we've gone through with the suit has demonstrated that this is in fact true. This organization does not behave like an actual journalistic news organization. And in fact, when arms of the organization do behave that way, they come under attack by the people who command the largest salaries at the most outward, forward-facing personalities in the business. That simply is not the way it's supposed to be done. And so I'm not really surprised, given the totality of what we found out, that they ended up in this mess because from top to bottom within the organization, they simply do not behave like journalists. And how does one summarize what it means to behave like a journalist? Well, there's a kind of baseline presumption that is rarely expressed, but that everyone in this organization wants to get it right, that we care about the truth, and that editing involves forcing reporters to go back and get another source, to verify the facts, make sure you don't embarrass us and make us have to print a correction, let alone a retraction. Make sure that there's no way in the world that we could ever be accused of intentional malice about what we're talking about. And these are the walls through which Fox crashed. And one gets the sense from the glimpses that we've seen behind the scenes that Although there are less egregious examples on stories with less prominent angles to them, one really gets the sense that this is just the way they operate all the time. And if that's the case, then the normal standards that, Sonny, you're talking about simply don't apply within the organization. And so what I was saying at the, in my first response about the possible minor good outcomes that could come from all of this might be the reimposition of some of that, a little of that behind the scenes, if for no other reason than trying to protect the company from this kind of exposure going forward. There are only so many times that you get hit with a nearly $800 million penalty that you're going <laughs> to be able to continue with your approach. Uh, it might not be fatal, but it certainly is going to hurt. And at some point, you know, could very well make the company uninsurable for these kinds of damages. And that in and of itself is very dangerous as a business proposition. Yeah, I would love to read a long, in-depth piece on the state of libel insurance at Fox and just to see how that is going. But that is for another day. All right. It's been a weird week for Ron DeSantis, who has in the course of a few days here not only come out in favor of putting prisons near Disney World, sure, as retribution for their alleged wokeness, but also failed to get the endorsements of a bunch of congressional Republicans who decided to back Donald Trump Instead, and it feels like these are two kind of interrelated problems. They're both of a piece, right? And they kind of signify a misunderstanding by DeSantis of how people like really think and operate. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think even the reddest of red voters hear someone say, I want to put a bunch of rapists next to Disney World. And they stop and they throw up their hands for a second. And they say, wait, wait, 
hold on. I mean, even Donald Trump put out a statement that was like, what is this guy talking about? Weird, wacky stuff. DeSantis losing the endorsements of GOP House members is also interesting because it really feels like he is bad at the simple politics of glad handing, right? He doesn't pick up the phone and make the phone calls. He doesn't slap folks on the back and make them feel like they've been heard. And it plays into this conception of DeSantis as kind of a putting fingered robot. He's unable to see how other people operate. Bill, is there something off-putting about Donald Trump's biggest opponent? And is that something, frankly, we should all be kind of worried about right now? Well, a few months ago, I decided to do due diligence on Ron DeSantis. So I sat down and watched a couple of long speeches that he gave to very friendly audiences, including a speech that he gave at the most recent National Conservatism Conference, which was in Florida. And I have to say that there was something peculiarly charmless about those speeches and passionless in the audience's response. He deflated rather than inflated enthusiasm as he talked, in part because his speech was almost constantly self-referential, even more so in some ways than Donald Trump's classic mode of discourse, in part because he displayed no noticeable sense of humor, in part because he came across as cold and unfeeling, feeling not even the warm sentiments of his audiences. And I shook my head after a couple of those due diligence hours and wondered whether someone who seemed even more charmless than Richard Nixon on the stump and I'm I'm old enough to remember Richard Nixon almost from the beginning. I spent the first 10 years of my life in his congressional district and was actually alive when he defeated Helen Gahagan Douglas in Southern California to begin his political career. And to say that someone is inferior in charm to Richard Nixon is, I think, to say a lot about someone's ability to connect. He is very well organized, calculating, knows how to use power, but knows, as far as I can tell, nothing about the political art of creating and sustaining relationships, which in politics is partly an illusion, but it's a necessary illusion. And if he is going to get anywhere on the national stage, he has to do better with the basics than he has been doing. I've read a few articles to the effect that he really doesn't bother to speak even with major donors. I've read that when people he knows are sick, he tends not to reach out to them. I really wonder how far he can get unless he learns very quickly to do things in public and in private that he has conspicuously failed to do throughout his political career, I think he must have been shocked. It isn't just random members of Congress who failed to endorse him and stepped up to endorse Trump instead. It was members of the Florida delegation. That was a, I have to say, that Trump's usual weapon of choice is the shillelagh rather than the stiletto. But that was a stiletto move and perfectly timed. I just think at this point, the Trump folks are a lot 
better at the blocking and tackling of politics than the DeSantis folks are. And it's not clear to me that he has anyone of real stature advising him to behave differently. There was a long article about his former senior counselor, Susie Wiles, who has now shifted to a similar status with Donald Trump. I wonder how much her absence is hurting him because she may have been the only person with enough status to tell him that he was screwing up and needed to change if he wanted to win. Bill, can I ask you to drill down on one thing? Sure. You mentioned he's self-referential. What specifically was it that jumped out at you as self-referential? A standard DeSantis speech, as far as I can tell, is a litany of all the great things he has done. So, And it takes the form of I did this, and I did that, and I did the other thing. It's like beads on a string, and everything is about what he's done and how wonderful what he's done has been with Trump for all of his narcissism. You get the sense that he really thinks of himself as acting on behalf of others who are like-minded. And so, When he says things like, I am your voice, I am your champion, however sincere or insincere or emotionally opaque even to him that statement may be, he draws people in. He gives people the sense that he's the leader of a movement or even a crusade. And DeSantis gives off the air that he has done it all by himself and expects to be admired for his solitary genius. Uh, And not bringing people in with you is a cardinal sin, I think, in politics. Yeah, it's a real problem for him, I think. Linda, as somebody who has worked in the political and corporate worlds, the thing that jumped out at me about this whole story was him just totally botching it in terms of talking to other politicians. How can a politician be bad at talking to other politicians and be as successful as Ron DeSantis has been. I find this mind-blowing. Yeah, it is a little bit mind-blowing. But of course, the stage in Florida, as big as it is, is not the same as the national political stage. And I do think these problems with interpersonal skills are going to be the undoing of him. Congressman Greg Stube from Florida apparently had a very severe accident. He fell while tree trimming, and was in the hospital, severely injured. He's part of the Florida delegation. He's one of the people that Ron DeSantis needs in order to, you know, have some sense that he represents his own state as well as his ambition to represent the country. And apparently, after he fell, he didn't hear a word from Ron DeSantis. He said he's actually never heard a word from Ron DeSantis in DeSantis's tenure and his tenure in Congress. But he did get a call from Donald Trump asking him how he was doing. It's those kinds of little things. You know, maybe they shouldn't be significant, but I can tell you from my years in politics, that kind of personal connection in something that is not 
asking you for a favor. You're not asking for a vote. You're not asking even for an endorsement. You're just expressing normal human kindness and warmth. And lacking that is really difficult. And I think DeSantis clearly has a problem there. From everything we've heard from his closed-door meetings with donors, people came out of the room less inclined to give him money. Some people who have already given him a great deal of money are holding back and may be on the verge or may already have endorsed Donald Trump or someone else in the race. I'm going to be very bold here. I'm terrible at political predictions. So this prediction plus $5 might get you a cup of lousy coffee at one of your local coffee hangouts. But I'm going to predict that Ron DeSantis is not going to be the nominee of the Republican Party. He is just not connecting either with the political class or with ordinary voters in a way that will carry him through states like New Hampshire and Iowa, much less onto the national stage. The DeSantis thing is interesting to me because it sounds, Linda, like what you're saying is he needs a human warmth and compassion person. Some politicians need a body man. He needs a guy to remind him what the actual human response to various things is and and what he needs to do to not alienate folks. I think that's right. I mean, I think he needs charm school. He needs to learn how to be more charming. He needs to learn how to smile in a genuine way. When I listen to Bill describing his self-referentialism, you know, all of the things that he said about Ron DeSantis, you could say about Donald Trump, too. There's never a speech in which he doesn't take credit for, you know, the sun rising in the morning. But he does it in a more entertaining and engaging way. It's not like he is reading from a list of bullet points that he's decided he has to make. It's done in a way that actually more connects with the audience. So just spending some time with people, learning how to react in a more engaging manner. Again, you know, looking at people, smiling, being willing to spend time. You know, I ran for the Senate. I know how tough that is. I, despite what it may sound like on this show, I'm kind of an introvert. Put me in a room with strangers and I generally find one person and go into the corner and spend the evening with them. But you can't be that way when you're running for office. And he's got to figure out a way to be able to connect with actual voters and with the people that represent those voters, because most of the people who get elected to office do have a better way, and they sort of expect that fellow politicians are going to behave in a political manner, and Ron DeSantis doesn't. Damon, if we had a time machine, we could move up the Florida primary to next week, next everyone's voting next week in the GOP Florida primary. Do you think DeSantis would have a chance against Trump right now or would he get blown out of the water? Well, on that specific question, I don't know because I haven't seen any polling in Florida. I don't know. We're just I mean, talking vibes here. Just vibes. Well, on vibes, clearly DeSantis uh, is quite popular there, or at least he was as of last fall, given that he, he won re-election by 19 points after barely squeaking in just four years earlier. So he converted a lot of people. I know a lot of people who study Florida politics say this is largely because there's a lot of support for the stance he took on COVID and restrictions being lifted a little bit before other places in the country. And that earned him a lot of goodwill. I honestly don't know about the things that he's been doing in order to rack up all of his right-wing bona fides going into the presidential race, things like 
signing a six-week abortion ban after having just signed a 15-week abortion ban about eight or nine months earlier, confronting Disney, the largest employer, a huge contributor to the state's economy, all of the gratuitous swipes about trans issues and gay issues and schools, all these things. I don't know how that is playing. What I do know is that Trump is running a pretty tight ship, and I have to say that that has me very worried. Not that I have any stake in DeSantis doing better than he appears to be doing right now, but short of Trump not being able to run, I don't see how DeSantis is going to fundamentally change this dynamic, and primarily because the Trump operation clearly knows what they are doing. It isn't just these endorsements this week and the Florida delegation, which I agree is a really embarrassing slap in the face for the DeSantis team and for DeSantis personally. But in the general endorsement run up around the country already, and again, it is absurdly early, but Trump has 45 House endorsements to DeSantis's three. And in the Senate, Trump has nine and DeSantis has zero. That's momentum. You know, I wrote an op-ed a couple of months ago for the New York Times in which I argued that as bad as DeSantis is, it would be better for the country if he were the nominee over Trump because Trump has distinctive things about him that make him an especially unfit and dangerous commander-in-chief, and we don't want him near the White House again. That got a lot of angry responses from liberals who often kind of reverted to the line that the reason why we don't want DeSantis in and why he's even worse than Trump is that he's competent. And I agree that in wielding power, he's shown, at least at the level of the state of Florida, to know how to get a lot of things done. But one of my rejoinders to that line of criticism was, I see all kinds of evidence that the Trump team has learned their lessons. The people around him understand that Trump kind of got outsmarted repeatedly throughout his four years, and they have been scheming and planning and organizing to do very different things if he can manage to win again. And I am troubled to see that he has a team as competent on the campaign side as they are already showing themselves to be, mind you, in a period right after the man was indicted, <laughs> which, by the way, has also helped him in the polls. I joked yesterday on some of the social media platforms that you know, the, the po latest poll in New Hampshire shows Trump up 12 points and DeSantis down 20 from like two months ago, which just goes to show that the thing Trump needs to be blow out New Hampshire is to be indicted on February 1st, 2024. You know, it's an upside down, crazy world on the Republican side in this era. And you need no more evidence than that little factoid. But I'm disturbed by the surprising degree of competence that I'm seeing from Team Trump this early and what that could portend for the future. Yeah, that's fair. Bill, you said in the chat here, you do have a Florida primary poll. So what are the numbers looking like? Well, I have a lot of respect for the Emerson poll and one that was made public on March 17th, just a month ago, had Trump 47, DeSantis 44 within the margin of error. Now, that's not a great result for DeSantis, because not being well in the lead in your home state after blowing out your opponent by double digits in the gubernatorial election 
is hardly a ringing endorsement, but it's not a total disaster either. So let me just tie this off with a handful of comments. I've been in six presidential campaigns, and I can tell you a few things. First of all, being a governor of a state is triple-A ball. And when you venture out onto the national stage, you're in the majors, you're in the bigs, and the pitchers are pitching a lot faster. And it's a real adjustment. It's an adjustment for anybody. And especially if you've become the master of your own domain, but don't know all that much about the rest of the country. That's point number one. Point number two, it is very rare for people in their 40s and above to get character transplants. You take yourself into the presidential primaries and under pressure, you don't become less like yourself, you become more like yourself. I've seen people get better, but they get better in that they master certain sorts of skills, but they don't change their spots. And I think that is going to be a real challenge for Mr. DeSantis. Finally, and I think most significantly, when it appeared to be just a two-candidate race, I think a lot of other people were hanging back and saying, what's the point of getting in? It's going to be one of those two. If DeSantis continues to flounder, I can imagine a lot of people who may be sitting on the fence will reconsider that calculus. I think it could have an effect, for example, on Chris Sununu, New Hampshire, governor of New Hampshire. You know, he's clearly thinking about it seriously, and he's an intelligent guy. He might well have said to himself two months ago, what's the point? I'm not sure he's saying that now. I was really happy that Linda asked for a culture round because I am, uh, as I said above, I'm the culture editor at The Bulwark and the movie and TV guy. I even sometimes read a book. It's true. I do it. And one of the things I like to ask folks is what they're watching. A good recommendation from a friend is the best advertising that money cannot buy. So Linda, what are you watching right now that you would recommend to listeners out there? So what I'm watching right now, actually, I just finished watching the two seasons and there is apparently a third season that's either coming or is available in Europe, but not here in the United States, is a Belgian TV series called Public Enemy. And it is a Belgian-French language production. It is about a serial murderer, a serial murderer of children, no less. So it doesn't sound necessarily like most many people's cup of tea. But while there are some deaths that take place, they're all off screen. And it's really more a psychological drama. The main character's name in the series is Guy Beranger is welcomed into a community of, it looks like, Cistercian monks in Belgium, where after having served his long sentence in prison, he is allowed to come and live with these monks, and he wants to be a novice. He wants to be accepted into the community of monks. And there's a lot of religion in this. And it's, you know, it's very surprising, particularly in a European show. And it's handled, I think, very well as somebody who was raised Catholic and knows a fair amount about Catholicism. I think they do a really good job on this. And just the kind of psychological element, is this man reformed? 
or is he simply waiting to plot his next child or other murder? I found it very engaging and I would recommend it. I saw it on Netflix. The first two years are available. Uh, There is a third season that's been produced. And as I say, I don't know when it's coming to the United States. I've tried my best to find it, but have not been able to find it. And if any of our listeners know where it is, please shoot me an email. All right. That's great. Damon, what are you watching? You got anything for us? Yes. I've been watching uh, the fourth season of the HBO series, at least for now known as HBO, right, Sonny? Uh, (laughs) HBO announced this week it's uh, dropping the HBO name in favor of Max, which I think is really dumb. But anyway, (laughs) that's a separate issue. It's called Succession. I'm sure listeners have heard of it. I have to say I have mixed feelings about this this show. I actually have a piece on my Substack coming tomorrow in which I basically argue that it's good sometimes very good, but really not great. But that kind of isn't suitable for the purposes of what I'm going to say now, because it is a very interesting portrayal of a kind of thinly veiled Murdoch-like family that runs a media conglomerate that's a thinly veiled version of Fox Corporation. And the the relationships among the Rupert Murdoch-like guy who started the business and his three kids. There are four kids, but three of them are always vying to be the successor to their father and the kind of human misery they enact on one another as they vie for his love and hate and then they love and hate each other and cause each other pain. And there are all kinds of things I could tell you about this current season, but it would require a lot of spoilers that I don't want to divulge for uh, listeners who haven't dived in yet. So I would encourage you if you like good exciting, stimulating, and slightly vulgar television to give Succession a try, but you probably should start at season one and work your way up to the current season four. Good, stimulating, and vulgar. That is the HBO guarantee. Exactly. (laughs) Bill, do you have anything uh, you want to share with folks? Yeah, I do, very briefly. I am almost as obsessed with Kim Philby as John le Carré was. I just find the story endlessly fascinating and to my good fortune, a wonderful British author by the name of Ben McIntyre has written a series of books about different aspects of the Philby affair, as well as other famous spy episodes. And I have just begun watching a show called A Spy Among Friends, which stars Guy Pierce as Philby and Damian Lewis, whom I find a very watchable actor, as Nicholas Elliott, who was Philby's closest friend and who was the man sent to beard Philby in Beirut when Philby's guilt finally became established beyond a reasonable doubt. That trip ended, this is not a spoiler because everybody knows the story, that trip ended with Philby decamping to Moscow. And the question has always been, did Nick Elliott, in effect, send him a signal that it would be better for everybody all around if Philby simply left? Or was Elliott sincerely trying to get a full and definitive confession from Philby, which he was in the process of doing? Elliott has always insisted, and I quote, He just gave me the slip. 
and a number of cynics in the British establishment who always thought that Philby had been protected for decades because he was, quote, one of us, never quite believed Eliot on that point. And that's really what the series is about. And as a human drama, I find it endlessly fascinating. What service is that on? Yeah, it's on MGM+. Plus. That's a, a great recommendation. Thank you. I will very briefly state the case for the movie Tetris. Yes, that's right. The movie based on the creation and the distribution of the 8-bit Game Boy game Tetris, because it's not really about a game. It's not a movie about a video game. It is, but it isn't. Really, it's a movie about international politics, the triumph of capitalism over communism, the way real competition lifts all boats, right? And aside from, you know, kind of fluffing my own personal ideological biases, it's just a really fun, well-done movie. It zips along from beat to beat, moment to moment, despite being almost entirely devoted to meetings and contracts and legal disputes. I mean, it's really just a fantastic piece of writing and directing. Uh, it's on Apple TV Plus if folks want to check it out. Highly recommend it. It's a lot of fun. All right, before we get out of here this week, let's do highlights and lowlights. Highlights and lowlights. Damon, what do you got for us in highlights and lowlights? Well, my highlight of the week is an essay in the latest issue of Leon Wieseltier's quarterly journal, Liberties, which I would like to almost offer as a separate independent plug just for the journal, which is consistently incredibly good. If you subscribe to the paper edition, it's like you receive an entire book four times a year. It's a really thick compendium of extremely thoughtful writing by some of the smartest people around. And the latest issue has a really excellent essay by my former teacher and friend, Mark Lilla, titled The Once and the Now, which is a really deep, very erudite exploration of the phenomenon of nostalgia in human life, and specifically the role of political nostalgia in politics. And it's an incredibly rich topic and a very rich essay that ranges incredibly widely over the whole range of Western Western civilization and thought, and then kind of wends its way toward a conclusion that reflects in a very stimulating and ominous way about the role of political nostalgia in 20th century totalitarianism and in then in contemporary Russia and China. So a really one of these essays that Leon used to publish in the back of the New Republic during the decades when he was a leader of American letters in that role. And so anyone who, like me, who misses that old New Republic can find that kind of thing in Liberties and especially in this new Mark Lilla essay, which I highly recommend. The old New Republic feels like the beginning of a novel right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm working on it. Yeah. Linda, what do you have for us? Well, unfortunately, I have a low light this week, and it is an article that was based on a study that the New York Times did about the fate of migrant children in the United States. The article itself was called As Migrant Children Were Put to Work, U.S. Ignored Warnings, and it's by Hannah Dreyer. It appeared on April 17th. And in the article, she talks about the some 250,000 children who've come into the United States over the last several years, 
seeking asylum. Many of them are then placed, they're supposed to be being placed with responsible adults who are care for them, with family members, etc. But many of them apparently are being placed with people who were really nothing more than traffickers and who are taking these kids and putting them to work because most of them have to pay off their debt. Getting into the United States illegally is expensive. It costs thousands of dollars. And these are kids who are escaping extreme poverty in their home countries. So we're talking about 13, 14, 15-year-olds, many of them young men, but some of them young women. And there have been a series of articles and news stories about this since this article appeared, including one about child cleaning slaughterhouses. If anyone's ever been to a slaughterhouse, I can unfortunately say that I have been. These are not pleasant places, you know, cleaning the blood and the viscera of animals that have been slaughtered for our meat is something that, you know, not many people want to do, which is one of the reasons people who are here illegally end up in those jobs because Americans won't take them. But it is one thing for an adult to voluntarily choose to take that job. It is quite another thing for a 14-year-old essentially to be forced into doing that very dangerous, very unpleasant work because he or she is having to pay off debts to a cartel back in their home country. So as somebody who's very concerned about immigration, and I think it is clear that the big underlying story in this story is not just about the fate of the kids, but about the way in which the warning signs were there individuals attempted to warn people in the White House and in the various agencies, and they basically didn't want to hear it because they don't have any kind of a reasonable solution to what is going to happen at the border and what is happening at the border. Well, that's a slight bummer, but thank you, Linda. Bill, highlight or a low light for this week for us? Well, this week has been a target-rich environment for highlights. And in that spirit of cup overflowing, I offer two. Some history about the first one. Exactly 50 years ago, I opened up a file called Memorable Euphemisms. This was sparked by a now famous discussion among the quadrumvirate of Richard Nixon, Haldeman, Ehrlichman, and John Dean. And Nixon, you know, speculating about how to handle the burgeoning Watergate scandal, said, well, we could let it hang out. And Haldeman chimes in, limited hangout. The eager young John Dean, as opposed to the sober older John Dean, whom I've gotten to know recently, chimes in, yeah, limited hangout. And then Ehrlichman interrupts and says, modified limited hangout. That was the first entry in my file of memorable euphemisms. Well, this morning furnishes me with my latest entry. As some of you may have heard, the you know SpaceX's latest venture, which is supposed to prepare the ground for a trip to Mars, got off the pad and then pretty quickly blew up. A SpaceX official a little bit later, said that the rocket had undergone, and I quote, rapid unplanned disassembly. And I thought that was 
good enough to put in the file. Sounds like something that happens when a toddler falls over a Lego toy, but apparently more serious than that. And then undeterred, Elon Musk said immediately, if the rocket gets far enough from the launch pad before something goes wrong, I would consider that to be a success. And then continuing the Moynihanish like a process of defining success down, the NASA administrator, Bill Nelson, tweeted out his congratulations to Mr. Musk and SpaceX. Uh, so that's highlight number one, memorable euphemism. Highlight number two occurred at the periphery of the White House, where a toddler managed to squeeze through the White House fence, you know, which has vertical metal stakes with a considerable gap between one and the next. Now, it transpires that this was not the first time that this has happened. This immediately brings to mind the episode of the Chinese spy balloons. And I would submit to you that this toddler episode needs to be taken just as seriously. Why? Because I think there's reason to believe that there's a deep conspiracy at stake, which involves training toddlers to probe the perimeter defenses of the White House. Now, what deepens my suspicion about this is that the toddler is a citizen of the country, of a country whose prime minister has admitted in a leaked document that his country will never fulfill its obligation to the NATO alliance. And I should also point out that this very troubling episode occurs after the height of the fence surrounding the White House had been raised to 13 feet. Now, what this tells me is something that the United States and perhaps future president, as well as past president Donald Trump, should take very seriously. And that is, when the United States goes high, our enemies go low. Or go skinny to get through. I will say, as the parent of a toddler, currently, they are a real menace. So we need to really get the toddler threat under control in this country. It's a growing, burgeoning problem for sure. Oh, but foreign toddlers, that's, you know. Foreign toddlers can, can be trusted even less. I can buy that for sure. <laughs> All right, that will do it for us today. Thank you to the panel for joining me. Thank you to our listeners. Our producer is Katie Cooper. Our engineer is Jonathan Siri, and our editor is Aaron Keen. Amona will be back next week. 